very much appreciated that song. You know, the, the root word of faithfulness is what word? Faith. That's right. And we want to study some more about faith. We have been studying through the weekend about faith. And I didn't have uh, a previous indication of what other speakers might speak about. And yesterday, Brother Peter Gregory spoke about the faith of Jesus. And I wondered, what will he cover? But I realized that we could have every speaker speak on the faith of Jesus and cover new ground with each speaker. So you can talk about the gospel, and just like there were four writers who wrote about the life of Jesus, each one brings out different facets. There's not just one facet of the faith of Jesus any more than there's one facet of the love of Jesus. There are many, many facets. So we'll look at some additional facets, and I'm thankful for the groundwork that has been laid already. Would you join with me in prayer to ask the Lord's special help for each of us as we study together? Father in heaven, we are thankful that thy faithfulness is great. It is great beyond our ability to measure, beyond our ability to comprehend. We so many times become impatient or disappointed by those that we deal with, and we lose confidence and faithfulness. And we cannot fully grasp the unending love that constantly bears with our defects and weaknesses and constantly has an interest in working with us to develop perfection of character and ability to live with thee for eternity. And we are thankful that thou art willing to work with each of us. I pray that our love for thee will grow deeper as a result of the things that we have been able to study through this weekend and the things that we can continue to study today. I ask for the Holy Spirit's working in our hearts for the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit. There may be things that that are preconceived ideas or traditional thoughts or familiar phrases. I pray that we may see new meanings in the things that perhaps we have been familiar with. I pray that the Bible will become more special to us. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. I don't think I need to even ask us to turn to Revelation 14.12. There's been such a, a focus of emphasis, and we should already be familiar enough with the passage to be able to go through it in our minds as we consider the three characteristics brought to view of God's people described in Revelation 14.12 the commandments of God, the faith of Jesus, the patience of the saints. We can take a topic like the faith of Jesus and wonder what more could be said. 
about the faith of Jesus. I'd like to study some things this morning that perhaps may be a, a new direction of thought about the faith of Jesus, one that we oftentimes don't give consideration to. Usually when we think of faith, we think of faith as part of our attitude or outlook or response to God. Faith in God, faith in His ability to work in our lives, faith in His overruling providences. And that is a very significant and important part of faith. But there are some other aspects to faith. I'd like to go to some Bible passages first. 1 John chapter 5, verse 4. Maybe you already know what this passage says. This is the victory that overcometh the world, even what? Even our faith. So what is faith? What does faith do? It gains the victory over what? The world. Faith gains the victory over the world. This is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. When we consider the faith of Jesus, the faith that was working in Jesus' life definitely gained the victory, didn't it? It was the victory over Satan and sin, over all that comprises the world. Now let's go to another passage in the book of Hebrews, chapter 2. It discusses an aspect of this victory over the world. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. You remember what the focus of Hebrews 2 is? Hebrews 1 is a focus on the divinity of Christ, and Hebrews 2 is a focus on what? On the nature of Christ in His humanity. The humanity of Christ. In his human nature, by the exercise of faith, he gained a victory. A very important victory. And it describes that victory here. Verse 14, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of what? The same. Now, there are some people today promoting the idea that Jesus had different blood than any other human beings. And that that was what made it possible for his blood to cleanse us from sin. But it's not the physical blood, brothers and sisters, that cleanses us from sin. We are to experience the cleansing work of the blood of Christ now. Does that mean that some red biological liquid blood comes down from heaven and, and washes us and that's how sin is cleansed? No. It's not the physical blood of Christ that cleanses from sin. The blood is a representation of something spiritual that is to take place. You remember it said that without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sin. Now, did the blood of bulls and goats get shed? Yes. yes, it did get shed. 
was the remission of sin by virtue of that blood? That's a tricky question, isn't it? <laughs> the blood, yes, by symbol. It was the faith of the people in the cleansing blood of Christ, whatever that symbol represents or means, it was faith in that that actually brought the remission of sin. It wasn't just the act of killing a bull or a goat and shedding the blood. Now the Jews actually came to think that that was the actual virtue of the blood that cleansed them from sin. And that by shedding the blood of bulls and goats and lambs, they were buying atonement for sin. They came to see virtue in the blood itself. And they didn't recognize it was but a symbol of something much greater, of much greater spiritual significance. And I believe that we are making the same mistake if we say that the virtue that cleanses us from sin is simply in the physical blood of Jesus. Because then it is necessary for us to make that blood different from anybody else's blood. Otherwise, our blood would have cleansing virtue to cleanse from sin. But this passage here completely eliminates the possibility of that kind of a construction on the physical blood of Jesus. It says, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also, that means in addition to himself, that means no one else but himself, likewise, the same as, you see, each word here keeps emphasizing and adding to the the impact of the emphasis. It's like every possible additional adjective of emphasis is added in to make sure we don't miss the point. He also himself likewise took part of the same. That through what? Death. Death. Now, so many times, as I mentioned, I think yesterday, I grew up in an Adventist home and a Christian family, I became familiar with many of these passages and and terms before I ever gained an understanding of what they meant. And in some respects, that could be a handicap. Because once you become familiar with the passage, you don't think about what it means. You just assign any any pre- preconceived idea about it and you go on looking for something new and I read through many of these passages and never realized what they really were saying until I went back through and started studying again as if I hadn't read them before and asking what do each of these things mean what is the, the meaning of it in the context that it's describing here what are the issues involved and what is the point of emphasis It says that through death he might do what? Destroy him that had the power of death. That is who? Okay, now now what is this exactly saying? It's saying that through something that he gains the ability to destroy him that has the power over death. Through what? Through death, he destroys him that has the power of death. Now, is that logical? Through death, he destroys him that has the power of death. How many people have died down through history? 
We don't know the exact number, but everybody except the ones who have been translated have died other than the ones that are now presently living, haven't they? There have been billions and billions of people that have died. How many of them, by the act of death, gain power over him that has the power of death? One. Only one. Why only one? Didn't they all die? He was the sinless one. All right, he was the sinless one. So it's not just the act of death in the sense of physically dying that gives the power over death, is it? There's something more than what we see just from a casual reading of the verse here. Can we see that? There's more to it than just by dying, power is gained over Satan. Now, if we just casually read the verse, it looks like by dying, he, just, he gains the power to destroy him that has the power of death. We need to understand that there is more than one kind of death. We experience, and all the people down through past history have experienced the physical death, which the Bible likens to a sleep. The sleep of death. It's a state of unconsciousness, a state when the body dissolves back into dust, and nothing takes place that a person is aware of during that state of unconsciousness. You remember many times in the Old Testament it talked about different kings or people that died and it says, and they slept with their fathers. The Bible speaks many times of death as a sleep. Jesus, even when Lazarus had been dead for several days, he said to his disciples, our friend Lazarus, what? Sleepeth. And the disciples said, well, if he's sleeping, then he's, he's going to be all right. And Jesus had to say plainly, he's dead. Is that the death that this is talking about when it says that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil? Is it? No. It's not the death that's simply a sleep of unconsciousness. It's speaking about another kind or another level of death. And the proof of that is that this death that Jesus went through depended upon taking upon himself fallen human nature in order to subject himself to that process. And also, by virtue of the fact that down through the ages, many, many billions of people have died, but none of them were able to destroy the power of Satan by dying. Only Jesus. Now, it says in verse 15, building on the thought that because by taking the nature of fallen human beings, being partaker of flesh and blood just like them, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, it says, and that he could deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage through fear of death. Now, it's true that many people today are afraid of death. But is everybody afraid of death? No. I don't know how it is here, but over in the United States, there's a high suicide rate among teenagers and certain other levels of society. Those people who 
desire to end their life have a greater desire to experience death than to continue on living. They're not as afraid of death as they are afraid of living. So is that what this is talking about? Are they subject to this bondage of death? That's not what this is talking about. And really, for the true Christian, is there a fear of death? If our life is hid with Christ, we don't have to be afraid to lie down and sleep for a little while until the resurrection. But there is a death to be afraid of from which we need deliverance. And it speaks of that here when it says that he would deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Let's go to another passage If we were using the concordance and trying to find more about what kind of death this is speaking about, what word would we look up? Death, Death, very obviously. Yes, if we were to do that, one of the passages that we would find a discussion about death would be in Matthew, I believe it's chapter 26. where it describes Jesus after the Last Supper. He was going with his disciples out to the Garden of Gethsemane. <coughs> when he got to the garden, you remember how he said to his disciples to sit sit here, but he took three with him into the inner recesses of the garden. And as he was going further into the garden with those three, In verse 37 it says, He began to be sorrowful and very heavy. The description in the book Desire of Ages says that as he was going, he he began staggering as if under some unseen or hidden weight. And several times would have fallen to the ground if it hadn't been for the disciples supporting and helping him to stay up. And they were really... Uh, very perplexed at what was wrong. Jesus said to them then in verse 38, My soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto what? Death. Even unto death. What was Christ struggling with? Was he almost ready to yield up physical existence at that point? That was not the struggle he was having. It wasn't a struggle to try to keep consciousness and stay alive. Jesus was experiencing a different weight of death. Let's go back to Hebrews 2 for just a little bit. Back earlier in the chapter... Starting with verse 9. But we see Jesus. This does not mean that we see him with our physical sight, but rather that in our perception and in our understanding, we gain a view. We see Jesus. We perceive him who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of what? 
The suffering of death. What is the suffering of death? Many people who die today actually are ending their suffering by dying. Isn't death an end of suffering? Many people long for death. They lie on a hospital bed racked with pain and they wish they could die because death ends their suffering. Death is not a new development of suffering for them, but rather an end, a termination of suffering. But here it says that Jesus was made a little lower than the angels, terminology which earlier in the chapter was used in relation to man. Man was made a little lower than the angels. So here it makes reference to the fact that Jesus was made as a man so that he could taste the suffering of death. It says, we see him made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, should what? Taste death for who? Every man. That he should taste death for every man. Does that mean that he tasted death for you already and tasted death for me? Yes. Does that mean that he tasted death for Abraham? Isaac, Adam, all of those people who are presently lying in their graves, Jesus tasted death for them. Now, did they taste death? Different. They died, ironic as it may sound to say it, by dying they actually were prevented from tasting death. The, the experience that it calls here the suffering of death, they did not experience because by dying they went into a state of unconsciousness and could not experience anything more. To really understand and experience the suffering of death that it speaks of here, we need to be able to maintain consciousness at the very point where we lose consciousness when we die. We need to be able to continue on feeling what it feels like to go through total dissolution in death, in final, eternal death. But presently, that, is, that experience is interrupted and stopped so we don't feel anything anymore by dying and going to sleep. But it says here that Jesus tasted death for every man. Now what was it that Jesus actually tasted? We see from the passage there in Matthew 26 that Jesus said his soul was exceeding sorrowful even unto death. Yes? Um, the conviction is in my mind while you're speaking Jesus could see was the fact that he could not see anything except eternal blackness behind the cross. Yes. You know, being cut off from the Father forever. To me, that's, I think that's what I mean. You hear the suffering of death. That, the that. Su- you hear the suffering of, of knowing that he could be separated from God the Father for all eternity. 
Yes, the, the experience of the suffering of death is something vastly more dramatic and profound than I think we usually consider because we're so accustomed to referring to the, the temporary sleep of unconsciousness as death and we don't think any further. We're going to take a look at that, that development of experience and see how that relates with the second death. Psalm chapter 22, which Brother Peter Gregory took us to briefly yesterday in his presentation. Let's look at some more things from Psalm 22 there. As he pointed out yesterday, the opening words of chapter 22 were the words of Jesus when he was hanging on the cross. Now, Jesus was familiar with Psalm 22, wasn't he? Do you think that when he was hanging on the cross that he thought this in his mind? Oh, yes, this is the time when I'm supposed to say these words. And then he cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Because this was the right time to say it. Because the psalm prophesied that was going to be what he'd say. No, not at all. These were the words wrung from a heart filled with anguish. This was not some act he was putting on because this was what the line called for now. This was coming from the internal depths of a heart rent with anguish. And the fact that these words here are the expression of his heart's deepest struggle indicates to us that what follows in the rest of the chapter is a revelation to us of the struggle that was going on in his thoughts, in his heart. Though the words were not spoken, here we have opened up to our inspection the internal struggle going on in Christ's heart when these words came forth. So let's just quickly look through some of the passage here in Psalm 22 and see what was taking place in his heart. Perhaps before we read that, I'll just point out one thing. Christ was the supreme example of living by faith. We've been studying about that through the weekend. And so as we are reading through this passage here, we are seeing the pressure that's brought to destroy Christ's faith because this is the supreme test of his faith. The pressure that's being brought to destroy his faith and the resistance of faith to that pressure. Can we see that as the struggle that Christ was enduring? It was a struggle of faith. So as we read through some of this, this chapter here, let's see if we see the things that indicate the, the pressure against that faith, the pressure of discouragement, of despair, of hopelessness, of the blackness where he can't see beyond the tomb. And let's see if we see where the indications are of how faith responds back to that pressure. And what finally gains the victory? Is Christ born down into the grave? Does he die and lose consciousness with the thought that all is black and he's eternally lost? Or does faith come out on the other side of this struggle and gain the victory before he loses consciousness? That's a very important question. If we say that Christ died the second death, 
then in effect we're saying he lost consciousness in the midst of the struggle when it seemed that he was hopelessly forsaken of the Father. And if that's what took place, then that means that the pressure of guilt upon him was greater than the ability of faith. That guilt was able to totally destroy him and faith could not survive the experience. Do we follow that? Okay, let's see what's happening here in Psalm 22 because we find the answer to that question here in Psalm 22. And we'll go to some other scripture passages to reaffirm that answer. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? Oh, my God, I cry in the daytime, but thou hearest not, and in the night season, and am not silent. Okay, would you say that what we've read so far is on the side of the pressure of guilt and despair and hopelessness, or is it on the side of faith resisting? (laughs) Yes, this is the expression of the pressure of despair, the, the effect of guilt shutting out the view of a loving, compassionate Father, a merciful God. But now notice in verse 3, but! Now when you're talking to somebody and you say, but, what does that mean? Here's a different line of thought. I'm introducing an exception. (laughs) But thou art holy, O thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in thee, they trusted, and thou didst deliver them. They cried unto thee and were delivered. They trusted in thee and were not confounded. Is that a continuation of the thoughts of hopeless despair and discouragement, or is that the answer of faith answering back and resisting? This is the struggle going on in Christ's mind through those moments as he's hanging on the cross. Waves of despair. He looks around him and sees the people (coughs) offering up their insults, laughing at him, saying he saved others, he can't save himself. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. All the evidence around him looks like he's rejected of God forever. But faith responds back. It doesn't give up the struggle. It resists all those evidences that Christ sees and hears and feels. And this is what faith said. Remember? Our fathers trusted. Remember a passage in the book Life Sketches, page 196, it says, We have nothing to fear for the future except as we what? As we forget How he led us. Have we forgotten the rest of the statement? (laughs) Yes, but there's another part of the statement. Except as we forget how the Lord has led and his teaching in our past history. Yes, many times I have heard the statement quoted and part of that part's been left out and his teaching in the past but sometimes, I, it's even happened in my own mind, we hear the statement, we have nothing to fear for the future, and we just kind of click off there, and we don't even hear the rest. We think, oh, how nice, we have nothing to fear for the future, and we f- settle back and feel peaceful and complacent. 
We have nothing to fear for the future. But the statement is really telling us that we have everything to fear for the future if we forget both how the Lord has led and his teaching in our past history. Jesus, from the youngest years, was a thorough student of the scripture. You remember when he was 12 years old, just 12 years old, he went and visited the rabbi school at the temple. Now, he hadn't been to the rabbinical schools previous to that. In Desire of Ages, it tells us that that the rabbinical schools would have unfitted him for his work. Now, those were not the worldly schools. Those were the church schools. It says he would have been unfitted for his work. But when he was 12 years old, he went and visited the rabbi teachers, the doctors of philosophy at the rabbi seminary. 12 years old. And he asked them some questions. And he sat in their class and listened to their teachings. And he asked them questions that opened up lines of thought that they had never conceived of before. And they turned on him and started asking him questions. And he seemed to know the scripture from the beginning to the end. And they started wondering. Jesus was familiar with the history of how God had led Israel. And here as he was hanging on the cross, that history comes back to his mind. Faith grasps upon that knowledge of the past. How our fathers cried to thee, and thou didst answer them. But now notice what happens again in verse 6. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised of the people. All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip, they shake their head, the head, saying, He trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. Now is that the continuing thought of faith, or is that the waves of despair, discouragement, and hopelessness trying to crush out faith? Yes, here we see new waves of hopelessness, blackness, trying to crush out the faith of Christ. But is that where it ends? Is that where the chapter ends? No, it goes on. But, here again, the word but introduces a different direction of thought. But thou art he that took me out of the womb. Thou didst make me hope when I was upon my mother's breast. I was cast upon thee from the womb. Thou art my God from my mother's belly. Now the first time there in verses 3 through 5, I'm sorry, yes, in verses 3 through 5, Jesus' thoughts went back to how God had led in Israel's history. But then the thought comes to his mind, but I'm different. You ever have that feeling? You hear people present their personal experiences, their testimony of how God has worked in their life and maybe brought them out of a terrible pit of sin. Maybe much worse than even your experience has been, but then you think, well, I'm different. God could help them, but somehow I'm different. I'm beyond God's help. It somehow doesn't work. I've tried everything I know, and it doesn't work. I'm different. That's exactly what the pressure of despair and guilt and hopelessness pressed back upon Christ. So how does he answer that? How does faith combat that? 
here's what faith brought to Christ's mind. The conditions of his birth, how he was brought into this world with a mission, how supernatural developments took place there were an indication that he was the scent of God. He was born of the Spirit. From his mother's womb, he was under the training and, and guidance of the Holy Spirit. These things are brought back to his mind. Verse 11, Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Now notice verse 12. Many bulls have compassed me. Strong bulls of Bashan have beset me round. They gaped upon me with their mouths as a ravening and a roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. Have you ever gone through such emotional and internal struggle that your whole body hurt all over? That's what Christ is experiencing here. My bones are all, all out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a pot's herd, and my tongue cleaveth to my jaws. Now notice the next phrase. And thou hast brought me into the dust of what? Death. Christ was here tasting what death feels like if you could continue being conscious and experience what death really is until you've experienced everything that can be experienced connected with death. Thou hast brought me into the dust of death. For dogs have compassed me, the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I may tell all my bones, they look and stare upon me. They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. Now, tell me, which side of the struggle are these words on? The side of despair, discouragement, and hopelessness, or the side of faith? Yes, yes. This is the pressure of guilt trying to completely crush out and destroy every last shred of faith. Is there any faith left to resist back in Christ's experience? Has he developed such a total dependence upon his father that like Job, he can say, though he slay me, yet will I trust him? Amen. Does faith have an answer back? Even when he's tasting the dust of death. What does verse 19 say, the first word? But. Have you noticed that? Each time... Faith says, but there's an answer back. But be not thou far from me, O Lord, O my strength. Haste thee to help me. Deliver my soul from the sword, my darling from the power of the dog. It's interesting if you study all the places where it talks about dogs. The word dog, spiritually speaking, is speaking about leaders of God's people who have apostatized and become the agents of Satan. Save me from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth, for thou hast heard me from the horns of the unicorns. What is this? Thou hast what? Heard me. Here, Christ expresses the confidence 
that his father has heard him. Did you notice previously? How did the chapter start out? I cry and there's no answer. Why don't you hear? Why don't you respond? But here, he speaks with confidence. Thou hast heard me from the horns of the unicorns. Notice verse 22. I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the congregation will I praise thee. If we had time, had had time to read all the way through chapter 2 of Hebrews, we would have found this verse was quoted there. Remember in Hebrews, the discussion was about Christ tasting death for every man. And because of that experience of identifying with man, he refers to them as his brethren. And it says here, as he's hanging on the cross, the final thoughts of his mind are the confidence, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the congregation will I praise thee. Verse, no, skip on down to verse 24. For he hath not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, neither hath he hid his face from him, but when he cried unto him, he what? He heard. Now, as you scan down through the rest of the chapter, you get all the way to the end of the chapter, and there's not one more word of discouragement, despair, or hopelessness. The last half of the chapter is the note of victory that faith comes out on the victorious side. Everything that death, the, the tasting of death, can put upon Christ, he tastes to its fullest. He drinks the cup to the dregs, and faith gains the victory. Faith has the final word. Faith restores the confidence that his father is there, that his father has heard him. Now, let's go to some other places to see if there's confirmation of that analysis of the struggle of Christ in the contest between faith and guilt and despair and hopelessness. You remember going back to the book of Matthew where it describes Christ's experience in Gethsemane and on the cross. Matthew 27, verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land unto the ninth hour. Yes, Matthew 27, 45. Now do you know when the sixth hour was? It wasn't the same as 6 o'clock in our time. When was the sixth hour? Yes, the sixth hour was noon. The third hour was halfway between sunrise and noon. The sixth hour was at noon. The ninth hour was halfway between noon and sunset. Which, if the, in the middle of the year when the day was 12 hours, it would be about 3 hours in each of those quarters. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land for how long? 
unto the ninth hour. That would be approximately three hours. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And that's what we've just been reading about there in Psalm 22. So that takes place right at the close of the three hours of darkness or, or at the end of this three-hour period. Now what happens after that? Just a few verses later, verse 50 Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. Now, it doesn't tell us there what he said. Did he just cry out, Ah! Is that what happened and he died? Or did he say something that was significant? Yes. What did he say? All right, how do we know? Yes, we must go to another gospel. This is one reason why there's four gospels. John chapter 19. Just before, moments before Jesus went into unconsciousness, the unconsciousness of the first death where suffering ends just before Jesus went into that sleep of death it says that he said it is finished and he bowed his head and gave up the ghost what is what do the words it is finished mean what was finished Alright, the developments that Jesus must complete in order to secure the plan of redemption. But what, what had he been going through there on the cross that was included in those developments? Jesus was giving a crowning demonstration of the example of faith, of living by faith. He was the supreme example of living by faith. And the demonstration of how faith works in the midst of the greatest pressure of guilt and despair and hopelessness was being demonstrated there on the cross. And when Jesus cried out, it is finished, the demonstration had been completed. It was finished. There was nothing more to be developed or accomplished in order to show that the demonstration was finished. Now until I began studying and realizing some of these things relating to the struggle of Christ on the cross, I just assumed in my mind that Jesus really gained the victory by being resurrected on the first day of the week. And I didn't realize the connection between the two great pillars of error. You remember what those are? Two great pillars of the wine of Babylon. What are they? Sunday sacredness and the immortality of the soul. Yes, a misunderstanding of the state of death. Those two are very closely connected and the experience of Christ 
shows the truth on those two points, and a misunderstanding of the experience of Christ supports the error on those two points. And here's how. If Christ demonstrated and gained the victory by being resurrected on the first day of the week, then that means that from the time he went into the grave, under the weight of despair and hopelessness, until he was resurrected, some additional steps had to take place. And if some additional steps had to take place, that means he was not fully unconscious. He was not sleeping the sleep of death. Furthermore, the Sabbath was instituted by God back at the time the world was created. The Sabbath was instituted when God had finished all his work. It tells us that in Genesis 2, 1 through 2, 1 and 2. When Jesus entered into the Sabbath, did he enter the Sabbath with more work still to do? No, he didn't. When Jesus entered the grave before the sun had set, he guarded the edges of the Sabbath in his work, even there on the cross. Before the sun set, he entered the grave. He was laid in the tomb. His work had been completed. He had already done everything that was necessary to be resurrected on the first day of the week. There was nothing left to do. It was simply a matter of resting on the Sabbath and being resurrected after the Sabbath was over. And that's why it tells us in the book of Acts it was impossible that he could be holden of the grave. Or words to that effect. Because he had already gained the victory over the grave. He had gone through the greatest element of death before he died. And when you've gained the victory over the greatest element, you have demonstrated you have power over every element. All the lesser ones as well. And so it was simply a matter of resting according to the commandment, and it was impossible for him to be held in the grave. Now let's look at that in the story as it's described in the book Desire of Ages, just very briefly, going back over some of these details, but filling in some additional details. In the book Desire of Ages, it describes this closing struggle of Christ I'd like to read just a little bit from page 752 and 753 it was not the dread of death that weighed upon Christ that is the dread of losing consciousness it was not the pain and ignominy of the cross that caused his inexpressible agony Christ was the prince of sufferers, but his suffering was from a sense of the malignity of sin. Christ was experiencing the full range of the ingredients of what constitutes sin. He was tasting death. Remember it said in Corinthians he was made to be sin for us. We have never experienced what sin fully is. If so, it would destroy us. We couldn't survive it. We don't have the development of faith yet that is necessary to meet that kind of struggle. Christ tasted it for us and gives us a second chance to develop 
faith to meet that test. But we're not ready yet. Christ was the prince of sufferers, but his suffering was from a sense of the malignity of sin, a knowledge that through familiarity with evil, man had become blinded to its enormity. Christ saw how deep is the hold of sin upon the human heart, how few would be willing to break from its power. He knew that without help from God, humanity must perish. And he saw multitudes perishing within reach of abundant help. Upon Christ as our substitute and surety was laid the iniquity of us all. He was counted a transgressor that he might redeem us from the condemnation of the law. The guilt of every descendant of Adam was pressing upon his heart. Now we experience guilt for our sins, don't we? (coughs) Just a little bit. Just enough to drive us to Christ. God only allows us to feel enough guilt to help us feel our need. We don't feel all the guilt we could feel for just one sin. If God was to allow us to feel all of the guilt that's inherent in one sin, we would be so overwhelmed with hopelessness that our life would be crushed out. The cross is a revelation to us of the full weight of guilt that's possible in sin. And if we didn't have the experience of Christ to show us that, we wouldn't realize that's what sin does. Because if God was to allow us to taste that, we couldn't survive it. He was counted a transgressor that he might redeem us from the condemnation of the law. The guilt of every descendant of Adam was pressing upon his heart. The wrath of God against sin... The terrible manifestation of his displeasure because of iniquity filled the soul of his son with consternation. All his life, Christ had been publishing to a fallen world the good news of the Father's mercy and pardoning love. Salvation for the chief of sinners was his theme. But now, with the terrible weight of guilt he bears, he cannot see the Father's reconciling face. The withdrawal of the divine countenance from the Savior in this hour of supreme anguish pierced his heart with a sorrow that can never be fully understood by man. So great was this agony that his physical pain was hardly felt. Imagine all of the torture and agony of the crown of thorns, the beatings, being nailed to the cross... And that's probably about like a mosquito bite when you're going through some terrible struggle. When you've been in a car accident, would you be obsessed with a mosquito bite when you've got broken bones and injuries from a car accident? No. Similarly, all of the outward physical suffering was barely felt by Christ in contrast with this internal anguish from the pressure of guilt. Satan with his fierce temptations wrung the heart of Jesus. The Savior could not see through the portals of the tomb. Hope did not present to him his coming forth from the grave a conqueror or tell him of the Father's acceptance of the sacrifice. Now notice what this is saying because something's going to change in a little bit. It says, hope did not present to him, what? His coming forth from the grave, a conqueror. 
When he came forth from the grave, he was a conqueror. But he couldn't see that at this point. Nor did it tell him of his father's what? Acceptance of his sacrifice. He had no indication of his father's acceptance of his sacrifice. It looked like his father had rejected him and turned away forever. He feared that sin was so offensive to God that their separation was to be eternal. Christ felt the anguish which the sinner will feel when mercy shall no longer plead for the guilty race. So here we have a preview of what happens when people go through the experience of the second death. Not in the act of Christ dying on the cross, but in the struggle that took place previous to his dying. It was the sense of sin bringing the Father's wrath upon him as man's substitute that made the cup he drank so bitter and broke the heart of the Son of God. Now, it makes reference to the darkness that came upon the area there where the crucifixion took place. And this is on page 754. It says, at the ninth hour, remember we read about that there in Matthew 27. At the ninth hour, the darkness lifted from the people, but still enveloped the Savior. So the darkness lifted from the people, but it still was around Christ. It was a symbol. The darkness was what? A symbol. What was it a symbol of? It was a symbol of the agony and horror that weighed upon his heart. Now it's very important that we see the the meaning of that symbol of darkness. It was a symbol of the agony and horror upon his heart. No eye could pierce the gloom that surrounded the cross. That means you could be just as close as all of you are here to me, but there was a cloud of darkness around him so dense you couldn't even see his face. Do you imagine how strange that would be? That darkness was a symbol of what? The agony and darkness upon his heart. It was an outward symbol of an inward experience Christ was going through. It was a symbol of the agony and horror that weighed upon his heart. No eye could pierce the gloom that surrounded the cross, and none could penetrate the deeper gloom that enshrouded the suffering soul of Christ. The angry lightning seemed to be hurled at him as he hung upon the cross. And it was then that he cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? As the outer gloom settled about the Savior, many voices exclaimed, The vengeance of heaven is upon him. The bolts of God's wrath are hurled at him because he claimed to be the Son of God. Many who believed on him heard his despairing cry. Hope left them. If God had forsaken Jesus, in what could his followers trust? Now notice, I'm going over to page 756. Follow very carefully each step of what happens now because in rapid succession some things take place. In silence, the beholders watched for the end of the fearful scene. The sun shone forth. 
But the cross was still enveloped in darkness. And what did that darkness represent? It was a symbol of the agony upon his inner soul. The sense of his father having rejected him forever. Priests and rulers looked toward Jerusalem, and lo, the dense cloud had settled over the city and plains of Judea. The sun of righteousness, the light of the world, was withdrawing his beams from the once favored city of Jerusalem. The fierce lightnings of God's wrath were directed against the fated city. Suddenly, the gloom lifted from the cross, and in clear trumpet-like tones that seemed to resound throughout creation, Jesus cried, It is finished. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. A light encircled the cross, and the face of the Savior shone with a glory like the sun. Do you see any contrast? Previously, there was a cloud of dense darkness around him, so dense that people a few feet away couldn't even see his face. And that darkness was a symbol of what was going on inside. But before he died, that darkness lifted and his face shone like the sun. Is that a symbol of anything? Is there a change of symbols here? Yes. If the darkness represented the agony upon his heart, what does his face shining like the sun represent? Yes. There was restored to Christ the sense of his father's favor and the confidence that he would come forth from the tomb before his last breath went forth. (coughs) Suddenly, it says, the gloom lifted from the cross. The face of the Savior shone with a glory like the sun. He then bowed his head upon his breast and died. Amid the awful darkness, apparently forsaken of God, Christ had drained the last dregs of the cup of human woe. Everything that is possible for sin to put on the heart of the sinner in terms of grief, despair, hopelessness, blackness, a sense of separation from the Father... Christ experienced all of that and faith came out on the other side, a victor. Before Christ entered the grave. Thus, when he entered the grave, he could say, it is finished. I've totally completed the work I came to do. He knew he would rise from the grave when he went in. The Sabbath, thus, was a rest of a completed work. Now notice, Reading just a few more sentences here on this page. In those dreadful hours, he had relied upon the evidence of his father's acceptance heretofore given him. He was acquainted with the character of his father. He understood his justice, his mercy. Notice those two things, and we want to study about that this afternoon and tomorrow morning. The justice and mercy, those were the two issues that were being contested. He understood his justice, his mercy, and his great love by faith. By what? By faith. This was the supreme demonstration of faith in the experience of Christ. This was the faith of Jesus. By faith, he rested in him whom it had ever been his joy to obey. And as in submission, he committed himself to God. Notice the next words. The sense 
of the loss of his father's favor was withdrawn. The sense of separation from God left him. By faith, Christ was victor. Going over to the next chapter in Desire of Ages, the chapter called, It is Finished. I want to read a few more sentences that confirm this picture. Christ did not yield up his life till he had accomplished the work which he came to do. And with his parting breath, he exclaimed, It is finished. The battle had been won. His right hand and his holy arm had gotten him the victory. It says, furthermore, on page 759, actually, I'm going to go just a few pages further here. Page 769. At last, Jesus was at rest. The long day of shame and torture was ended. As the last rays of the setting sun ushered in the Sabbath, the Son of God lay in quietude in Joseph's tomb. His work completed, his hands folded in peace, he rested through the sacred hours of the Sabbath day. Now you remember the disciples at this point were overwhelmed with consternation. And as we read in one of the previous meetings, they were gathered together in a room for fear of the Jews on the first day of the week. You know what kind of outlook the angels had when Christ was laid in the tomb? What was the outlook of the angels at that point? Were they sad or happy at the point when Jesus was resting in the tomb? Okay, are you are you are you answering as a guess or answering on the basis of study? Okay, I want to read a passage and then then you tell me the answer. In the beginning the Father and the Son had rested upon the Sabbath after their work of creation. When the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them The Creator and all heavenly beings rejoiced in contemplation of the glorious scene. Now, when is this talking about? Back at the creation of the earth. That's right. The morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Does it sound like there's any sadness at that point? No. Now, Jesus rested from the work of redemption, and though there was grief among those who loved him on earth, yet there was joy in heaven. Why was there joy in heaven? Because a demonstration had been made that answered questions in the minds of the angels about God's love, justice, and mercy. The angels saw that a victory had been gained, a victory They had been waiting 4,000 years to see demonstrated. There was joy in heaven. Glorious to the eyes of heavenly beings was the promise of the future. A restored creation, a redeemed race that having conquered sin could never fall. This, the result to flow from Christ's completed work, 
God and angels saw. With this scene, the day upon which Christ rested is forever linked. Well, I wish we could take more time to develop some of those themes, but I hope that what we have covered so far is sufficient to show us that Christ entered the grave with a conscious knowledge that he was victor in this struggle with death. Thus, instead of saying that Christ died the second death, we could more accurately say Christ experienced the second death and gained the victory over it. Christ gained the victory over the second death. That is how, through tasting death for every man, Christ became able to destroy him that has the power of death because Christ offers us that victory. And when we take hold of that victory, when we have completed the work and can say it is finished like Christ did, when we can enter fully into Sabbath rest as Christ did, Satan has no power to bring us under the dominion of death. We can have the victory that Christ offers to give us. Now there's one more aspect before I close that I want to bring out about the faith of Christ, and I'm just going to have to do this in the sense of an introduction. We can't really study it in, study into it in, in much detail. But simply to introduce... This aspect of the faith of Christ, I believe, is very important at this point in earth's history because many times as we look at the faith of Christ, we consider the exercise of faith in his relationship with his Father. But there's another dimension of the faith of Christ in regard to his relationship with Israel. In what way was there an exercise of faith on Christ's part in his relationship with Israel? You remember when we read in Great Controversy, the first chapter, what is the first chapter about? The destruction of Jerusalem. In those first few pages in that chapter, it describes the work that Christ did and how he constantly went about doing good and how the the nation of Israel resisted and opposed. And it says the waves of mercy beaten back by hard hearts returned in stronger surges as Christ endeavored to try to win the people of Israel. Christ continually worked to bring about revival and reformation among Israel. Now did Christ know that Israel would reject him? Did he know that they would crucify him? Yes, he told Nicodemus early in his ministry, he said the Son of Man must be lifted up. He knew how that was going to happen. Did the fact that he knew they would reject him diminish his enthusiasm and effort to bring about revival and reformation in Israel? No. Can you explain that? Yes, in Hebrews it mentions the joy set before him, but 
it might be possible for a person to explain that in the sense that he saw all the redeemed from Adam down through history and that for that joy he was willing to endure the cross. But we're focusing just on the nation of Israel. Christ was working to bring about a reformation in Israel. And sometimes I have thought of it this way. Suppose that you had a special dream. You, you had recently gotten married perhaps. And, or at least for, for the sake of this illustration, you would need to think of yourself in the sense of, of being married. And you have a dream from the Lord, and, and an angel comes and tells you you're going to have some children. You know, just like angels came in old times to Manoah and his wife, to, Elizabeth, or to Zacharias, and to Mary, to Joseph. An angel comes and tells you you're going to have some children and tells you about each of those children, maybe three or four children, and one of them is going to turn out to be a black sheep in the family. One of those children is going to turn against you. They are going to do terrible things and they are going to bring your name into great disrepute. You will become national headlines in newspapers because of the terrible things this child does and your family will be misrepresented. And you find out all of that before your child is even born. Now with that knowledge in mind, what would you do when that child's finally born? (laughs) Would you take them halfway around the world and commit them to an institution and change their name and make sure there's no connection with you? Well, you know what the faith of Jesus does in that kind of a situation? It lavishes more love and more attention and everything possible to win that child's love and affection and to give them the right kind of training. That's the faith of Jesus exercised toward an undeserving being. Knowing what's going to happen. And that was how Christ related to Israel. Christ had a confidence there would be some fruit. He constantly worked for the possibility of bringing about a reformation in Israel. If you want to read a little bit about this aspect of Christ's faith, read the section in Desire of Ages on his struggle in the Garden of Gethsemane. You remember how, in fact, I'll read just a few sentences here from part of this. You remember how Christ was being tempted by Satan. Not only was he tempted that he was going to be shut out forever from his father's favor, he was also being tempted that his sacrifice was totally useless in behalf of man. It took an exercise of faith in that regard for Christ to continue on. Notice what is happening in this struggle. Satan is presenting to, or is making an effort to present before Christ the uselessness of his sacrifice on page 687 
It says, what was to be gained by this sacrifice? How hopeless appeared the guilt and ingratitude of men. In its hardest features, Satan pressed the situation upon the Redeemer. The people who claimed to be above all others in temporal and spiritual advantages have rejected you. They are seeking to destroy you. The foundation, the center and seal of the promises made to them as a peculiar people. One of your own disciples who has listened to your instruction and has been among the foremost in church activities will betray you. Who was that? Judas. One of your most zealous followers will deny you. Who was that? Peter. All will forsake you. These 12 men that Christ had put his all into training and teaching, they would all forsake him. One would deny him, one would betray him. Christ's whole being abhorred the thought that those whom he had undertaken to save, those whom he loved so much, should unite in the plots of Satan. This pierced his soul. The conflict was terrible. Its measure was the guilt of his nation, of his accusers and betrayer, the guilt of a world lying in wickedness. The sins of men weighed heavenly upon Christ, and the sense of God's wrath against sin was crushing out his life. The human heart longs for sympathy and suffering. This longing Christ felt to the very depths of his being. In the supreme agony of his soul, he came to his disciples with a yearning desire to hear some words of comfort from those whom he had so often blessed and comforted and shielded in sorrow and distress. And were the disciples ready to give him that comfort? No, what were they doing? Sleeping. <coughs> Sleeping. The one who had always one who always had had words of sympathy for them was now suffering superhuman agony. He longed to know that they were praying for him and for themselves. How dark seemed the malignity of sin. Terrible was the temptation to let the human race bear the consequences of its own guilt while he stood innocent before God. It's important, brothers and sisters, that we see that the struggle of Christ was not only the struggle of feeling that he was being shut out from his father's favor. The struggle of Christ was also in the sense that it looked hopeless to do anything for humanity. <coughs> Thus, the faith of Jesus is a faith that believes something can be done when it looks like nothing will work to save fellow human beings. Do you think God's people are going to demonstrate that aspect of the faith of Jesus in the last days? What kind of circumstances do you think it takes? Do you think we need to be surrounded with people who all look very responsive and who all are following the voice of the Holy Spirit? Do you think that's where we can demonstrate that kind of aspect of the faith of Jesus? Or do you think the circumstances might involve being in the midst of of a people who profess to serve God but seem totally unresponsive to the pleas of the Holy Spirit. Do you think we should expect to see circumstances similar to what was in Israel in these last days? And will God have a people who still have faith that they can live for the Lord 
and that there will be fruit as a result of their efforts? Or will they give up hope that anything can be done for their fellow human beings? There's much more I wish we could study on this, but we must close. It's my earnest desire that we will give consideration to these aspects of the faith of Jesus, that we will earnestly search our own hearts, that we will lay aside personal desires and preferences, that we will seek to reflect the character of Christ. Father in heaven, we confess and acknowledge before thee that that we are in need of the development of faith and love, hope, of all of the Christian graces. And especially we desire that there would be the development of faith in our experience that would reflect the faith of Jesus. Faith in Thee and faith in the work that can be done in the human heart of those around us. I'm thankful for the example of Jesus who held out hope even to Pilate and to the Jewish leaders, the priests and rabbis who seemed so hardened in resistance to him that the door was still open for them and he constantly worked to try to bring them to repentance. And I pray that we likewise would work for those around us, those who to us may seem totally hardened in impenitence or resistance. I pray that in the struggles of our experience, when it may seem that there are no answers to our prayers, there's no response from Thee, that things are against us, may we still hope in Thee. May we still be willing to trust in Thee. May we still wait quietly for the working of thy providence. Pray for each of my brothers and sisters here that we will go forth from these meetings with clearer direction in our experience of how to fasten our faith upon thee and how to live for thee. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.